Good evening, everyone. Christmas to each of you. It's good to be together, and thank you for making Calvary Chapel a part of uh, your celebration of Christmas Eve. My prayer has been and is that the Lord would richly bless us, bless us with his presence, even as we consider a familiar story uh, to many of us. It's not going to come as a surprise to many of you, but this year, Americans are once again planning on giving gifts uh, for Christmas, and as I enjoy doing, uh, I like to know, I, I like to keep the pulse of America. I sounded like George Bush there for a moment, but I like to keep the pulse of America. What, what are we giving? What are people giving? And so here are some of the gifts that are be going, going to be going out. Before, though, however, do you know that 60% of Americans now, up from 56% last year, do almost all of their shopping online as opposed to going to stores. 60% of Americans, only 24% of Americans will actually even enter into a store to buy a gift this year. I'm one of those Americans, did not go to a single store this year, though I do enjoy walking around the mall, didn't do that either. Whether you're online or in line, it's estimated this year $178 billion is going to be spent just on Christmas gifts Another 600 million or so on travel and food and decorations and all that, but 178 billion dollars in just in Christmas gifts. The average person or the average uh, that they're planning on spending is about 932 dollars per person. Is I don't make this up. I'm just I'm just sharing it with you. And if you're a parent just so you know what everybody else is doing, so you can live your life based on other people's standards. $330 per child is what parents are expecting to spend to show their kids they love them. I don't know, something like that. Here's what they're giving. By category, top gifts by category for 2022. This is for kids, and that's defined as ages four through seven by Greg. That's how I'm defining it, all right? You guys are rough tonight. Here we go. The Geo Safari Junior Talking, not that one yet, Put hide that. The Geo Safari Junior Talking Microscope for those kids who like to learn while they're playing. The Kid Zoom Creator Cam for future YouTubers. And now you can throw that up there. This one here, that's the Mama Surprise Guinea Pig. Apparently, it's very popular. And when, when the little kid wakes up in the morning, those little three guinea pigs were born in its little cage, something like that. I don't know, I, I babysat guinea pigs before and they got lots of surprises for you. And, and so I'm not interested in that one. This is for tweens, this is tweens, 10, 11 and 12 year olds, according to my sources and I have a lot of them out there. Uh, the Fuji Film Instix Mini 11 Instant Camera, not yet, John. That is not the camera. AirPod Pro is a big one for little kids, so we can ruin their hearing. Uh, and then, John, show the people. A, an electric razor. Those things are pretty cool, but this one's motorized, and you don't have to use your muscles in any way. This is what high schoolers are getting. John, this time show them. A Kodak Mini Pocket Projector. Yeah, so you know, you're on your phone and you want to watch a movie with your friends, you pull that thing out of your pocket, and there you go. You got a projector for the wall. Also, I find this fascinating, record players. More specifically, the Crosley Voyager turntable is one of the most popular. Bombas socks. I'm not a teenager, but you can get me them if you're looking to get me something. They're the best. Uh, and the Nintendo Switch 
is also popular again this year as it was last year. Here's the adults. That's what most of us here are, the adults. This is what we're hoping to get under the tree, and somebody's going to be getting them because these are the most popular. Three-in-one Apple charging station. Weighted throw blankets. You got one of those? You're hoping to get one of them? Um, okay. A master class subscription. You know what that is? So you're going you're gonna to learn something online, and you, you pay, somebody else pays the money, and you go and you study poetry or something. I don't know, whatever you want to. And this one, this will be perfect for this weekend. Rechargeable hand warmers. Look at that. Yeah, you can have that. Put them in your pocket, and you go. There's a few others. This is for some. No gender. Uh, I can tell you which gender wants it, but the iRobot Roomba vacuum. All right, men and women, I'm sure. Uh, and then I like this one. It's made by Harley Davidson, and it is a e-bicycle. Look at that. That's $3,800. So I don't expect many of us would be getting that. For the ladies, this is what. Not what I'm saying, this is what the studies are saying. The coach flap card case on a lanyard, which is like a little purse. And then these, look at these guys. Huh? Aren't they nice? Yeah, they are the, I hope I'm saying it right. They're the Gianvito Rossi Monte Carlo sandals. They look like a high heel shoe to me. They are only $750 per shoe. All right, closer to. So that is going to ruin your budget of 900 bucks. It's going to ruin it. Well, Christians have been giving gifts to their loved ones to celebrate the birth of Christ for about 1,700 years. So it, it wasn't something that called on like right from the very beginning. But for about 1,700 years, Christians have been giving gifts. And it's commonly thought that the reason why we do is sort of to commemorate what Daryl read just a moment ago in that the wise men brought their particular gifts. In actuality, gift-giving began about 300 years or 270 years or so after the birth of Christ and after the visit by the wise men. And it wasn't actually to commemorate what the wise men had done. It was actually the adoption of a, pagan, a Roman pagan practice. And so the Romans, as more and more of them became Christians, they kept some of their previous practices of the faith that they used to follow and they began to give gifts to one another. And it caught on uh, in the Christian faith, and it caught on as a celebration of uh, the birth of Christ in the 300s. Most popular gifts in the 300s, candles. That's nice. Cheap wines. Fruit. Nobody wanted to say that's nice here. Okay. Uh, fruit and nuts. They were the most popular gifts in the 300s. And I, I think we've come a long way since the 300s. And so then, while gift-giving is a practice that's borrowed from pagan society, there was the precedent, however, of gift-giving, which was established by the wise men that made their way to Bethlehem to see, as the scripture says, he who would be born king of the Jews. And as we read earlier in the book of Matthew, it said, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. A little later in that passage, it says, And then going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, there's a lot of details that are presented to us in those few verses. 
In verses 1 and 2, we learn that these wise men, that they are from the east, and that's likely referring to the land of Persia, today Iraq, today Iran, those places, also known at one point prior to being known as Persia, as the land of Babylonia. And so we know, we know the, and understand from this verse that these guys have traveled a long way to come to this place, about 800 miles. Secondly, we see these men, they came to Jerusalem in search of, as it says in the passage, the one that was born king of the Jews. So they 800 miles to look for the one that was born king of the Jews. Thirdly, we take notice that the prompting of their searching was in conjunction with the rising of a star in the sky, which they knew was a sign to them. And so they were expecting this star, they saw this star, and they followed this star, following it 800 miles from the land of Persia all the way to the land of Israel. And then finally, as they followed this star, they did so with one intention when they got there. Verse 2 of the passage we read tells us they came with the purpose of worshiping the child that they would find. That's what we know uh, of the the Magi, or these uh, three wise men. They're called Magi. The Magi were sort of this ruling class of the Persians, highly educated um, people um, as they were. They were in the priestly class as well. Now, that's the extent of what we do know from these verses, but we can ascertain a few things along the way. Somewhere in time, they came to discover this... uh, I don't want to call it a story, but this idea that there would be a star that would lead them. And somewhere along the way, they they learned that lesson, and they were looking for that star that would appear. We know that they were willing to travel close to 1,000 miles, 800 and some miles to get there. And we know that it was their intention to worship. What we don't know is how they knew these things. How did they come to know these things? They weren't Jews. They were from a foreign land. They didn't have the Bible. They had to go to Israel and ask these things of people that did know the Bible. Now, historically, the Magi, as they're called, they were pagan sorcerers, magic. You can see the word there in that word, Magi. And yet these sorcerers have an understanding of who the true God is and how that true God was going to work. Now, being from Persia... And those that attend here on Sunday morning, you know we've been studying this. The Persians were those that conquered the Babylonians. And so being from Persia or the area that had been known as Babylon, it's entirely possible that these men were descendants of those that interacted with another wise man of the region. Of course, I'm referring to, for those that know, Daniel. Daniel, as you may be aware, he was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. And he was taken from Israel to Babylon as part of the captivity, 600 years before Jesus was born. As the book of Daniel, the book that bears his name, tells us, Daniel was a prophet of the Most High God. But here's how the Babylonians referred to Daniel in chapter 2 of that book. They said, so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions. Now, why did they seek Daniel and his companions? Because they were part of the group that were considered the wise men of Babylon, a.k.a. Persia. That is, they were those that came before the wise men in our story here on Christmas. Not only that, 
But that same chapter goes on to say that Daniel was not just any old wise man of Babylon, but Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 tells us that he was the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And so I would suggest to you that it's quite possible and it's probably even likely that these wise men in our Christmas story know what they know about that star that they followed and whom that star would lead them to because of the information they and others had gleaned from the chief prefect over the wise men who had come before them 500 years earlier. And so, if the words of Daniel were passed down to them regarding the star, what else can we presume was passed down to them as well? Well, based on their behavior and their actions, I think we can, can conclude a few things. If you know the book of Daniel, or you're familiar with it a little bit, you know that God revealed many things to Daniel. And those many things that he revealed to Daniel, he said he one of the, among them, he wanted to reveal what would occur in times and seasons. And that includes this prophecy, which was in the ninth chapter. Chapter 9, Daniel 9 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it'll be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now that anointed one that Daniel is referring to, that's the word that is commonly translated as either Messiah or as Christ. And so the word Messiah, the word Christ, both of those words mean the same thing, anointed one. Messiah is sort of the English way we pronounce the Hebrew word, and Christ is the English way we pronounce the Greek word. But they both mean the same thing. And so when Daniel is talking about an anointed one, he's talking about the Christ. He's pointing that uh, to the Christ. And so how is it that these magi came to know about God's Messiah or about God's Christ and that uh, the fact that a star would guide them? Well, we can't say for certain, though I, I really do think you can make a really good case for it. It's because Daniel told them, or he told some people who went on to tell them 500 years later. What we do know for certain is what their response was to that uh, which had, they had come to know. They had come to know that God would send a Messiah to and through the people of Israel. They had come to know that the appearance of a star would indicate the coming of that anointed one, and they had come to know that that anointed one should be worshipped, and he was worthy of their worship, and they responded. And in that, the wise men teach each of us, I think, our first important lesson of the evening, and that is this. It's that God's revelation requires a response. You can't be indifferent to God's revelation. You could say, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. That's a response. Or you can say, I do like it, and I do agree with it, and I receive it. And that's also a response. But God's revelation requires a response. They knew that, and you and I need to know that as well. And so these magi, they make their long journey to Jerusalem. Again, we're talking about 800 miles. They expect to find in Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, the spiritual capital of Israel, the location of the temple, all those things. Their expectation is that they're going to find this anointed one when they get to Jerusalem. 
And as you may be aware, you probably are and may not even realize it, he wasn't there. This anointed one wasn't actually in Jerusalem. Now, determined to find the one they were searching for, they go to the person who should know, the king. And they make their way to King Herod. And not surprisingly, King Herod is concerned when he hears that they had come to find the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews, is what Herod was probably thinking. And they're like, no, no, we're talking about another. And so as you can imagine, he was concerned. Now, you should also note that the arrival of the wise men was likely a lot more than three guys coming into town on camels. To begin with, we, we have no idea how many wise men actually arrived. It's commonly assumed that there were three wise men, and I think that's based on the fact that they, they brought three gifts. Each one of them brought a gift. But in actuality, there could have been 303 wise men, plus all of their assistants and all of the others that were traveling along with them as companions. And so it's much more likely that there was a large contingency of royalty that came into town, pulled into the town of Jerusalem, and were standing there before King Herod. And so thus, naturally, Herod the king would have been concerned. He says this, verse 3, Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And troubled as he was, Herod assembles the religious leaders. Verse 4 calls them chief priests. It calls them scribes. And he assembles them to discover from these experts in the, what we call the Old Testament, to discover from them where is, the, where is God's anointed to be born. Where's the place that will be the birthplace of God's anointed? These were the experts. If anyone knew, they would know. And so, having gathered those leaders together, Herod inquires, and they respond. And immediately, this is an easy one for them. They don't have to think it through or get a notebook out or anything like that. They said, Bethlehem. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And that's a reference to the prophet Micah. They add, uh, or there, it says, And you, O Bethlehem, they quote the verse, In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The wise men had expected to find God's Messiah in the political and spiritual capital, Jerusalem. They instead learn that it's going to be in a small little village, seven miles from Jerusalem, a tiny village that is referred to as Bethlehem. Now, you know the name Bethlehem now, right? You wouldn't had Jesus not been born there. Bethlehem was a tiny little village. It would have been similar to names like Libna. You guys know where Libna is? Or Tirzah. You know where that is? No, you don't. Don't even pretend you do. Right, nobody knows where those places are. That's what Bethlehem would have been. But because it's the place that the Messiah was born, it's become known to every one of us in this room, and we sing songs about it. And so notice again what the prophet says. He says, Bethlehem, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. A small, poor, tiny village, max 300 people or so, primarily poor shepherds in the land. And that's it. Raising sheep and animals to be used in the temple in Jerusalem. Now the Matthew account continues. Verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them how long earlier, what time the star had appeared. Now here's another thing. Many times we think that the 
wise men, even some traditions have it, that they got there two weeks after Jesus was born, January 6th, as some traditions. The wise men probably got there a year or more later. The star appeared when Jesus was being born, and they got there a year or so later. So it says here, Herod, he, said, he tries to find out what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. We should put worship in quotations, because that was certainly not Herod's desire. As some of you know, you've read the story or other portions of the story, Herod would eventually go and try and kill this king of the Jews, his rival. He would often before he could become anything. And so verse 9 goes on. Now, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that, had been seen, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They went on their way, it says. That's referring to the wise men. It's not referring to Herod. It's not referring to all of Herod's officials. It's not even referring to the chief priests and the scribes that had studied the Old Testament so diligently and knew this is where the Messiah is going to be born. And now here's all these people going to find him. The chief priests and the scribes didn't even go. How sad. The only ones that did go were these magi or these wise men. All the rest had missed it. The wise men, however, did not miss it. And as Herod instructed them, they continued diligently searching to find the child. They had traveled 800 miles, seven more, wouldn't be no big deal. And so they journeyed on from there until the star came over, as we read in verse 9, it came to rest over the village of Bethlehem, over the place where the child was. And at last, they had come to the place where the one sent from God to save his people from their sins could be found. And you'll see there in the verse, verse 10, having done so, they rejoiced exceedingly. And not only that, not only did they rejoice exceedingly, the passage says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice the emphasis that is placed there. Twice a form of the word joy is used and twice the magnitude of their joy is pointed out. These guys were really excited. Strike that. They were really, really excited about what they had come to find. Matthew continues his account in verse 11, and he says, In going into the house, they saw the child, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Notice they didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship Joseph. They didn't worship anyone else. They worshipped him and him alone. And despite the fact that they came into this house and they encountered just a small child who was the son of peasant parents in a tiny little insignificant village, the wise men knew that the child was the one sent from God who would, as Joseph learned just a little earlier, save his people from their sins. And after having worshipped this child, they presented gifts to the child. And of course, those gifts were the gift of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh. Christmas, as you're all aware, has become and very much is about gift giving. And while it is true that the giving of gifts around the time of the winter solstice was a pagan tradition and practice, we see here that the giving of gifts was very much present 
at that very first Christmas in those humble confines of Bethlehem. The wise men brought three gifts in particular. Matthew 2.11 again tells us gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Odd gifts to give a young child and his parents. The practical gift would have been blankets and some diapers and onesies and things like that. That would have been practical. The wise men, however, didn't bring that. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they did so by design. Each one of those gifts was meant to communicate an important message and lesson about this child that they were worshiping. And so they present gold. Now, in a very practical sense, this gold will be very important because Mary and Joseph are about to be refugees, having to flee the land and go to another land with just what they could fit on their back, so to speak. And that gold would certainly come in handy. And in a practical sense, it was, it was very uh, helpful to receive the gold. But as we see so often in the scripture, beyond the immediate meaning and purpose of an item, we often find a deeper, more spiritual meaning that is being communicated as, as well. And for that, we look to other places in the scripture where the precious metal gold is found and what it represents in each of those occasions. And as we do that, what we come to discover about gold is so very often it is associated with one of two things, secularly and spiritually or religiously. It's associated with royalty and it's associated with deity. And so these wise men, they brought gold as a statement of their recognition of who this young child was and would prove himself to be. And that is both king and most holy God. And so by giving this gift, they were declaring that the one that they had come all of this way to worship is the only one that is worthy of worship. That's a statement that this is God in the flesh, ruler of the world. They knew what one of Jesus' disciples would later come to know and record for us in a book that he wrote, the Gospel of John. They knew that this child was the word and that all things were made through him and that without him, nothing was made that was made. And by entering into that Bethlehem house and bowing before that Bethlehem baby and presenting the gift of gold to that baby, they were pronouncing again what John would later write, that the word became flesh and has dwelt among us. The 700-year-old prediction made by the prophet Isaiah had been fulfilled. The virgin had conceived and a son had been born. Gold. Now, in addition to the gold, the wise men, they brought frankincense. And as you can probably guess from the, the latter portion of the word, frankincense is an incense. And as such, it was meant to be burned. And it was meant to create a sweet, savory smell. The word frankincense, it actually comes from a French word, and it means highly fragrant incense. And because it is so fragrant, it's considered one of the best of the best incenses. It was often used in ancient temples, even in the Jewish temple, and it was meant to depict a pleasing offering to God or to the gods if it was in some foreign temple. And as with the gold, the wise men, what they're here, they're seeking to communicate what it was they believed about this child through this particular gift. And in giving to this child and his family frankincense, the wise men were seeking to communicate their belief that this child would grow up 
to become a pleasant offering to the Father. Though almost certainly they didn't fully understand, the gift of these men communicates that they at least partially understood that Jesus' destiny would be one of sacrifice. It would be one of offering. That this child would be God in the flesh, King of kings, and Lord of lords, as the gold communicates, but he would also, his life would also be a life of love and a life of offering and a life of sacrifice, which would ultimately culminate at the cross. This is what the Apostle Paul would later write about Jesus' work on the cross. He tells us, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so even though just a child, the wise men were aware of the destiny of this child, that he would be a sweet-smelling offering unto the Lord. I'm reminded of the words that came booming from heaven at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Jesus was baptized as an adult, as some of you have read. And as Jesus came up out of that water, the Father in heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom... I am well pleased, a fragrant offering unto the Lord, a pleasing offering. Reverentially, Jesus was just getting started at his baptism, and God was already well pleased. Soon he would lay down his life in an ultimate sacrifice. And so they offered gold, they offered frankincense, and then, of course, they also offered myrrh, as verse 11 tells us. And myrrh is a spice that is used to prepare a body, in, in that culture at least, for burial. You recall that after the death of, and burial of Jesus, that some of his disciples, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, some of these women that were followers of Jesus, they went and they took, his, well, they took spices to go and to prepare his body properly for burial in the tomb. And they went that Sunday morning to do so. The scripture that tells us that is Mark it's uh, Mark 16. It says, Now when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they went out and they purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Those burial spices is myrrh. And so of the three gifts that the parents received on behalf of their child, Mary and Joseph received, I imagine this is the one that they were least excited to receive. Because this is the gift that spoke of the sacrificial death that Jesus would one day die on behalf of others. They present the gift of myrrh as a symbol of the bitterness and the suffering and the affliction and the untimely death that this child would undergo. The giving of this gift was meant to communicate that Jesus, though a king, the king of the Jews at his birth, and though a highly favorable one to his Father in heaven, would nevertheless go on to pay the ultimate price by giving his life on the cross for all who would believe on him. We don't tend to focus on the cross, Good Friday, Easter. We don't tend to focus on those uh, days and, and events in our celebration of Jesus' birth. But the reality is Jesus Christ lived his life that he might give his life. And shortly before he did give his life, these are the words Jesus declared in the garden. He said to his father in prayer, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
Jesus then says, no, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus did all sorts of remarkable things during his three plus years of earthly ministry. He taught magnificent sermons. He healed the sick. He even raised the dead on multiple occasions. But none of those things, as wonderful as they are, were the primary purpose for which he had come. The primary purpose for which he had come was to give his life as a ransom for others. To quote the Apostle Paul, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so while at Christmas, our time, our attention, our resources are attracted to many good and wonderful things, things like trees and lights and gatherings and cookies and gifts, gifts that we both give and gifts that we receive, what our hearts need to be drawn toward in a fresh way each year at this time is the gift of God's Holy Son, God in the flesh, who would be at the time of his birth and has become at the time of his death a highly favorable and acceptable sacrifice on your and my behalf. I'll leave you with this final closing verse this evening from the Apostle Peter. It's what Peter shared while speaking before the rulers and the scribes and the elders of his people after Jesus had died and risen again. Peter, who just a week earlier, remember, denied even knowing Jesus, now, filled with the Spirit, boldly proclaims these words to the, the, the rulers and the scribes and those that had Jesus put to death. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, one could be given the most wonderful gift in the world and leave it sitting under the tree unopened, long after the lights and the tinsel and even the tree itself has been taken down. In that, event, in that case or that event, that gift would be useless to the person whom it was given to because it's only as a gift is received and made one's own as it is applied that that gift has accomplished what the giver was hoping it would do. And so this evening, I hope that every one of us here has heard a familiar message about the coming of Jesus, but I do hope that you have received the gift of salvation that is made possible by the work of Jesus. Near the start of our time together today, I said God's revelation requires a response. Jesus saves, you've heard the expression, but not all will be saved. Jesus has love to the fullest, but not all will experience that love to the fullest. Jesus is the gift of God to the world, but not everyone in this world will have appropriated that gift as their own. And my prayer for each one of us this evening is that every one of us in this room will appropriate the gift of God's love and, and his provision to the fullest by coming to the one sent to save us from our sins. Let's pray together.
Father, it is, it's key, it's so very important that we really do just pull back and consider why exactly your son was sent into the world and the significance of that night, that holy night in Bethlehem when he was born. For, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, you predicted his coming. And Lord, I'm concerned for those here that don't yet know that reality and have not appropriated and applied it to their lives. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us, whether we've known you for many, many years or we don't quite yet know what it means to walk with you. I pray for every one of us here that we will come to an understanding of what it means to be in right relationship with God through his son. So, Lord, please bless your word that went forth this evening. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.